I'm Aryeh Cohen, and this is Daf Shui. Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a Daf or so. So here we are. This is probably the last pod of the... This is definitely the last pod of 2022, depending on when pod drops. It might be the first pod of 2023. But yeah, so we're coming to the end. We're, we're coming to the end of the year. There's kind of an artificial denotation of time, but as all time is, coming to the end of the year, some good stuff, some bad stuff, everybody's going over everything that happened in 2022, so I'm not going to do it for you. I do want to remember that on this day in 1890, U.S. troops fired at and killed 300 Lakota people in a massacre at Wounded Knee. Over half of those people were women, children, and elderly tribal members. The United States is still not reckoned with its past, with the genocide of Native Americans. And by reckoned, I don't mean every once in a while saying something like that, but rather figuring out what reparations mean, what land back means, sitting on unceded Tangva land here in what's known as Los Angeles. What does that mean? So that's one of the things that we need to grapple with as we move forward into a new solar year coming out of Hanukkah, a holiday of remembrance and forgetting the story that we tell of Hanukkah. Which story do you tell of Hanukkah? Do we tell the story of the miracle of the oil? Do we tell the story of the military victory? What do we forget in telling each of those stories? And larger, what do we forget when we tell the story of this country? We have a new government in Israel. Lo Aleinu. Oh my God. It can't be more religious fascist if it tried. Well, that's not true. It could always be more religious fascist, but there you go. So... That's how we're starting this year. It's only uphill from there. On the other hand, we have some bunch of new um, great Justice City Council members in Los Angeles. There's lots of energy and activity around the fact that we got rid of the current sheriff. We have a new sheriff who we don't have to get rid of yet. We have the ability to impeach the sheriff because of a new ballot measure that passed. We have a new mayor, the first African-American woman mayor of Los Angeles, only the second African-American mayor of Los Angeles in the city's history. We have a number of new city council people. Hopefully we have a enough of a progressive caucus on the city council, progressive group on the city council to move things forward. So there is hope in the air. There is hope in the air. So we are just about at New Year's, and here in Los Angeles, we're dragging the firewood from the backyard and wondering, why are we dragging the firewood from the backyard? It's Los Angeles. But anyway, here at Daf Shui, here in our comfy little bait midrash in the closet, we try to bring you the highest quality Daf Shui programming available on this site. We so appreciate your being here with us, pulling up a chair to our imaginary table and joining in the centuries-old process of asking the question, what were the rabbis thinking? So now we are asking for you, if you are able, to be partners in this venture by going to our Patreon page which is located on the podcast page, and becoming card-carrying members of the Beit Midrash. Cards not included. Remember, we are not one of those corporate Dafyomi outfits. We're more of a rickety storefront shtibel Dafyomi. Thank you so much. Who's Daf? Our Daf! Who's Daf? Our Daf! Who's Daf? Our Daf! Okay, so let's get into it. We're starting on the bottom of 97B, the Mishnah, which is about three lines from the bottom of the Daf. We're still talking about selling wine, and what does that mean to sell wine, and 
What happens if the wine goes bad? There seems to be an ongoing debate in the literature about how bad. I, I made a declarative statement based on one source, one scholarly source, that characterized wine in late antiquity as being gross, awful. But it seems that in late antiquity, there were places that were known for their good wine. Now, the question is whether or not good wine in their terms is good wine in our terms. But in any event, we're going to move forward and not continue this debate. Just know that there uh, it's not totally. <sighs> Don't cancel me for saying that late antique wine was terrible. Okay, here we go. <laughs> So if somebody sells wine to their friend, to their fellow, and it went bad, it vinegared, is almost the literal translation of a hechmitz from chumetz, from vinegar, it, it became vinegar. He is not, the seller is not liable for the wine, right? Ba'achrayut and achrayut is also something that we've seen earlier before uh, dealing with land, right? So that you have to follow up on your responsibility to the land after you sell it. Here, too, one is not responsible for the wine going bad after selling it. But if the person's wine is known as wine that goes bad, then it is a a fraudulent sale, a a bad sale. And then the, the, the seller has to refund the selling price to the buyer. The Rajbam explains what does it mean that it's Yadua, uh, uh, that it's known that the wine goes bad. It means that every year as wine goes bad, the Yad Ramah said it must have, must have happened three times. And if the buyer knows about this wine and buys it anyway, then it's not a Mekachtot, right? Then it's not. So the buyer thinks that, okay, the wine goes bad every year, but maybe I'll get it for cheaper. That's not considered a bad sale or a uh, a fraudulent sale, and then can't demand refund for it. Ve'im amarlo. Now, before we go on, there is the one of the big things that uh, the Gemara is going to be talking about, and as, actually also the medieval commentators that we shown them talk about is whose casks is this wine in? Is it in the buyer's casks, or does it remain in the seller's cask? Earlier on in Bavach, if you remember, was selling and buying grain and other things that had to do with, with the moment of acquisition, whether it was in the buyer's, whether the grain remained in a buyer's vessel or was poured into a the seller's, uh, whether it remained in the seller's vessel or was poured into the buyer's vessel, when was the moment of acquisition. This has not so much to do with the moment of acquisition, but rather has to do with who is responsible for it going bad, meaning that was there something tainted, not in some mystical sense or in pure sense, but something tainted in terms of causing it to go vinegary in the casks of wine. Okay, so the second line. So if the seller says, I am selling you spicy wine, which is a, a, uh, a different kind of a better quality wine, wine that should last longer, so if he says, I am selling you spicy wine, spiced wine, it has to remain good, not vinegary, until Shavuot. Okay, so that's so then that becomes, that's an interesting question about what that means until Shavuot. The Gemara picks it up a little bit, but the question of not beyond Shavuot is discussed by the commentaries. And the Rajbam says it's because the heat of the summer season ruins the wine, right? Shavuot is in more or less... May, June. So afterwards, the heat of the summer ruins the wine, so you can't be held responsible for it. 
This, however, must mean before Shavuot, that is, between Rosh Hashanah and Shavuot, or between Pesach and Shavuot, because if not, as the Yad Ramah points out, the day after Shavuot, there's a whole year until the next Shavuot, and which my wine might spoil. I mean, if, if I sell you wine on the day before Shavuot, so it just has to last till Shavuot, it seems. But if I sell it to you on the day after Shavuot, it has to last another whole year. So why is that? On the other hand, the Yad Ramah does not have a specific explanation for why Shavuot. He says that in general, spiced wine does not spoil prior to Shavuot. However, he does not provide a good explanation for why and dismisses the notion that in some way, Shavuot might protect the wine, right? That we would have some notion, some religious notion or, or mystical notion that Shavuot protects the wine. He says, fat. On the other hand, and this I was going off the ranch a bit. Grape harvest in Israel is in August to September, and then it takes a while to make into wine. So the Mishnah is probably assuming the wine is ready sometime in the spring, and then the demand that the wine remain drinkable until Shavuot is not outlandish. However, it is still unclear what the timeline is because different wines have different times for fermentation, and after fermentation, there's aging, and there's all kinds of things that happen to wine, and so it's unclear still what kind of a deadline Shavuot is in this sense. It's a deadline, and it's uh, it's actually codified in the Halakha, in Maimonides' Mishneh Torah, and nobody seems to question it, so it, it's not clear to me. <laughs> okay, so further, there is a dispute on this, on this wine that goes until Shavuot, on this spiced wine, whether this wine is in the seller's casks, which the Yad Ramah says, or in the buyer's cask, and that like, coming up on this position is Tosfo, the name of the Rosh Ba, and also it's in Thorat, Rabbeinu Nisim. The Yad Ramah's reasoning is that you cannot hold the seller responsible for the stability of wine if it is in the buyer's casks, which might have been tainted in some way. Tosfut agrees that if vinegar was found in the cast of the buyer, then the seller could make the claim that it was buyer's fault. So Tosfut grants Yad Ramah's claim, but says that the idea that the seller has to provide wine that has the ability to last until Shavuot is the point. In other words, the, the wine has to itself have the ability, and then even if, it, if it's in the buyer's casks and then it goes bad, and then it was the fault of the buyer's cast because there was some kind of already vinegary thing, substance that was making it go bad, then that still, the, the Tos would say, would, would agree is on the buyer has to eat that loss. It's unclear, though, the Tos seems to assume that um, one can figure that out. Wine goes bad, and then you bring in CSI wine detectives and figure out whether or not and whose fault it was. We are continuing the Mishnah, third line of the Mishnah, Vyashan. Michel Eshtaked, Umiyushan, Michel Gimelshanim. So now if I sell you wine, so if I say it's Yayan Mavusam, we've got through that, spiced wine. But if I sell you wine and I say it is old wine, so then it has to be last year's wine. Miyushan, actually, if it's very old wine, it has to be at least three years old. And the Gemara talks a little bit more, a little bit about that in the Gemara. All right. So the Gemara. So this is what we were talking about a little earlier. Biosi Barchanina said that we're only talking about, this is only talking about the casks of the jugs or the casks of the buyer. But if it is the, the jugs of the seller, so then he could say to him, here's your wine and here's your jugs. So 
give me back my money. And if it's the seller, the, the jugs of the seller, what difference does it make? The seller should say to the buyer, I didn't, uh, yes, it's my jugs and it's my wine that I sold you, but I sold it to you to drink. I didn't sell it to you to, to let it sit around forever. So the buyer says, no, that's not the situation. Why? Because this is a case where the buyer had said, I am using it to cook with. Right? This is not my evening drink, but I'm rather using it to cook with. So therefore, I'm only using it for a little bit at a time. And you know that uh, it's going to take a long time. So therefore, you sell it to me. You sell it to me and it has to, you, I told you, I need this to last a long time. So that's what we're talking about. It, it has to be the the buyer's jugs. So now the Islam is asking, so what, but what forced Rabbi Yossi to establish the Mishnah, to understand the Mishnah, we're talking about jugs of the buyer, and in a case we said that he's using it to cook, so it's a thicker kind of wine to cook with. So why not say that it's talking about jugs of the seller and not Lemikpen and not talking about wine that he's going to cook with and then he could just give it back to him. Amarava Matznitin Kishite says, Rava said, it is, uh, the Mishnah is what made it difficult. If he knows that the wine goes bad, right, this is in the Mishnah, then it is a fraudulent sale. Amai, this time asked, Why? Rabbi asked, why? Why would that be so? You should say to him, I told you I didn't want, I, told, I, I didn't expect you to let it sit around for long. So therefore, we have to say that it's talking about that he said it is for mikpeh, and it's for cooking and only to be used a little bit at a time. And this is a dispute in. Uh, what Rabbi Chiyah Yosef said, "Da'amar Rabbi Chiyah Yosef, Chamra Mazala Demare Garim." Rabbi Chiyah Yosef says that Chamra, the the wine, the uh, Mazal, the astrological sign or the the fate of the owner causes it to go bad or not. And this is a verse from Chabakuk. The JPS translation has, how much less shall the defiant go unpunished? And that phrase is the one that's, that's quoted here. Um, the treacherous, arrogant man who has made his maw as wide as Sha'ol, who is as insatiable as death, who has harvested all the nations and gathered in all the peoples. So it's it's a bad thing. But the question here is about what does Afki Hayayin Bogade mean, which is translated in the JPS as the defiant go unpunished because they're, it's kind of hard and they have their classic comment of Hebrew unintelligible or unclear. Traditional commentators actually go with some form of hayayin, not mean, not coming from some other surprising root, but rather some form of hayayin, meaning the person who drinks, which is also not the kind of straightforward meaning, but hayayin, the person who drinks the wine. And then it would mean something like the wine drinker will betray, or hayayin bogade as a 
Bogade something, Shotei and something like that, that the, the wine drinker will betray. The Gemara, however, is going with Gever Yahir, the arrogant man is the subject, and Yahin Bogate as wine that has betrayed, that is gone bad because of the arrogant man. Hence, Reb Bar Yosef's Midrash, Midrashic reading, hence, it is the mazal of the owner, the fate of the owner that causes the wine to go bad. Okay, so that's clear. It says, Hamrad mazala de mare garim, the wine, it is the fate of its owners that cause it, so therefore it is the one who who owns it, the seller. And reading that even though, or thus, the traitorous wine is because of the arrogant man. That's how he's reading that midrashically to prove that. Okay. And then the question of the plea of the Rebbe Yosef is, and because Rebbe Yosef would then say that it is the one who owns it, rather the one who is the the Baal of the wine, the one who has bought it, so the buyer rather than the seller. And that is what the machloka that is the disputed in the previous conversation. Amar Rav Mari, Rav Mari says, afilu la So now we're riffing on um, this verse and saying, Rav Mari adds here, the one who is arrogant, even the the members of his of his household do not accept him or do not accept his words. Shnemar gever yahir velo yinve, a so he says, an arrogant man who is not pleasant or who is treacherous, according to the JPS. My velo but the Gemara says, what is lo yinve? Bin naveshelo. So actually, they're using the root nave, nave, which can also mean household place of residence, and saying, using that as a verb, will not, he will not be accepted in his nave. The Me'iri uses Rav Mari's comment, Haiman here, as an excuse for a small bit of Musar, for a small bit of pietistic teaching. And he says the following, is my translation, although the trait of authority or ruling over others is appropriate in certain places according to the place and status of the person. In a person's house, it is not appropriate for anybody to lord over their children and members of their household. Rather, one should act in humility so that one is not considered a stranger and alien to them. It seems to me, the Meiri goes on, the explanation of this statement is that one who is an authoritarian, even in their house, is not accepted. His words are not accepted. That is, their words are not heard, and they don't leave space for those for whom it would be appropriate to learn for them to act according to their rebukes or exhortations. So, too, it is not appropriate to appear to others outside the household, and that means the, in the general public, in a manner not appropriate to one. For one cannot fool people, and the people do not support a person according to what the person appears to be in their eyes, but rather according to the eye they, the people, interpret in one's manner to their eye, right? That they, the people, interpret in one's manners, and according to the way they judge the person. So you can't fool the people, though we've just had some, seems more aspirational than necessarily empirical, but this is... And interesting, the, the Me'iri just goes off on this Musser statement, which is great that being arrogant 
is uh, nobody you end up even in a patriarchal structure and even in the domicile of the patriarch the patriarch should not be arrogant because nobody's going to listen to him um, and in general more generally a way of thinking about parenting and then a way of thinking about being in community and being in the world all right Back to the Gemara. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav, Kol HaMitgaeh betalit shel tamid chacham, ve'ino tamid chacham, ein machnisin otav mechitato shel HaKadosh Baruch Still doing Midrashic riffs on this one verse. Um, Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, anyone who wears the garment of a sage, but is not a sage, so somebody who pretends to being a sage, um, is not brought into the place of God. It's not brought into the place of God. And why? Right? We just read, here, the one who is arrogant, what does mean? There in the uh, Song of the Sea, the song says that, that or the reference of your holy dwelling, meaning uh, the place, and a red here, there means probably something like your temple, something. But here, it means the place of God, um, so therefore reading it, an arrogant person, meaning somebody who who out of their pride dons the cloth, the, the clothing of a sage, but doesn't deserve that clothing, is not allowed into the space of God. Okay. Amarava. It's interesting to think about that in connection with what the Me'iri just said about arrogance and lording it over and what authority means and how to deploy authority in the community. Just a little musing on that. Amarava. Rava says, right, we now we just did a bunch of stuff which a little earlier than Rava, though Rava is interpolated there. So Rava says here, Haiman de Zavan Le Chavita de Chamra Le Chanua or Le Chanva Adaita Le Savuye Vitakif Apalga o Atilta so Rava says, one who sells a cask of wine to a store owner. So the, they're actually a square. El manuscript has Chanuta, but Chanua would be the, the store owner, possibly, and or uh, with the intention that the store owner sells it for him. So in other words, the store owner, and here is kind of the, here's the thing, that the store owner becomes the agent, the shaliach, of the original wine cellar, and therefore the wine belongs to the wine cellar until sold. And so that's the reason that takifa pago atilta, that if the cask goes bad for halfway or a third bad, the halacha is that it is the wine owner, the wine cellar, the original wine cellar, who has to accept the losses. Mekabel, that's what mekabel here means, who accept the losses. Um, so as long as the store owner does nothing wrong, the wine seller has to eat the loss. V'la amaran ela de la shani shani And this is only referring to a case in which the store owner did not change the bunghole where the wine is extracted from the cask. But if he did, if he if he drew if he drilled a new hole, then it's uh, then the agent that is the store owner uh, takes responsibility for the wine and the losses are on his shoulders. And it's also only talking about a case where the store owner didn't miss the market day. 
wakes up the next day and says, oh my God, I missed it. And we'll, we'll wait till the next market day. And then it goes bad. But if he missed the market day and then it went bad, then uh, the uh, store owner, who's the agent, has done something wrong. So he's been negligent. And therefore, he has to take responsibility for the losses. Another Rava Halacha. The Amar Rava. Haiman de Kabil Chamra Adaita de Mamtile le Parvata de Val Shafat. So somebody, a person who takes, accepts wine, right, buys wine, with the intent of bringing it to this city, this outskirts, called Val Shafat. And by the time he gets there, the wine is already cheaper. Right? So the halacha is that he, the person who brings the, who bought the wine and brought it there, has to accept the loss. Ibailu, so they asked him, they asked Rava, Havachalamai, what happens if it went bad? Not that it became cheaper because nothing happened to the wine. It's just that the market, the bottom of the market fell out between the time you got the wine in your wagon and the time you got to where you were going. But what happens if the wine went bad? Amarle, Rav Hillel, Ravashi, Kihavan, Berav Kahana, Amarlan, Chalalo. So, other people are now weighing in, actually, people in later generations. So it's not clear that this question was actually asked to Rava. Ibailahu is, you know, it's kind of a stomach question. Rav Hillel said to Rav Ashi, when I was at Rav Kahana's place, he said to us, if it went bad, so then he doesn't have to accept the loss. All right, so that goes back to the, earlier. We were talking about how, you know, wine, you have to have some kind of an assumption that wine is going to stay good for a while. Udalo karabi yasi barchanina, and not like rabbi yasi barchanina. And there are those who say that even if it went bad, he still has to accept the loss. Why? Keman, who is this according to? According to Rabiosi Barchanina. Okay, why? Because it says, Kankanim de Lokeach. Rabiosi Barchanina said they're talking about there in the Mishnah that it's talking about the vessels of the buyer. All right. The Gemara moves on now to going to the last line, Yashan. If he says, if the seller sells wine and says that it is old wine, so that means it's from last year. And so we learned that this means that it, that it gets older until Sukkot. So that is when the dividing line is for when the year is Sukkot. This week's podcast is brought to you by Chunky Water. In the mad rush of preparation for your New Year's parties, let me take one decision off your plate. This year, get Chunky Water. Aren't you tired of the binary choice, still or sparkling water? Can you believe we are still there in the 21st century? Well, binary choice no longer. Now you can say, I'll have chunky water, please. With our maybe, possibly, could be patented process, we lower the temperature of water to well below 32 degrees in a special machine called a freezer. We then carefully cut the water into chunks, and then voila, we are able to give you perfectly chunky water every time. The next time someone asks, say, chunky water, please. Okay, we're going to the next Mishnah. Turn the page, next Mishnah. Hamocher makom lechavero. Vachena makabel makom mi chavero. Asolot beit chatanot livno ubeit amanot libito. If somebody sells a place to their friend, a, a place of land, like a piece of land, or if somebody accepts a place from their friend in order to, like, buys or acquires... Uh, from their fellow in order to make a wedding house, a Beit Chatanot, a wedding house for their son or a 
widow house for their daughter. Very gendered. The Gemara even picks up on how gendered it is. Bone arba amot al sheish to Rebekiva. So Rebekiva says the implication here is, and kind of the legal implication, is that in this case where no measurements are stated, the person who gets the space builds a house four by six. According to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmuel Omer Refet Bakar Hizo. Rabbi Shmuel says that it is this is a a stall for animals, for cows and bulls. Okay, for kine. So Rashbam says that this is that this Rabbi Shmuel is just contradicting Rabbi Kiva's statement, but not introducing a measure, a new measure for Beit Chatanot. So Rabbi Shmuel is not saying that Beit Chatanot. He has another different measure for Beit Chatanot, but he's just saying to Rabbi Akiva, four by six. That's not a house. That's a refet bakar. That's a stall for for uh, for animals. And then he doesn't say though. He doesn't answer the question. What is a Beit Chatanot? What is the proper measurement for a for the house for young married folks? The Mishnah continues. So this following along with what Rabbi Shmuel says, one who wants to make a, a stall for animals builds it four cubits by six. If it's a small house, a small house is six by eight. Gadol chet shmona aleser. So a large house is eight amot by ten amot. Traklin eser al eser. If you're building a an entryway to a large house or an entryway between two places, it is ten by ten. Rumo kechatsi or ko kechatsi rochbo. And moreover, its height is half of its length plus half of its width. Now here we're running into a question of what the next line means, which we'll talk more about when we get to the Gemara. Rayala davar, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer Kivinyan Hahechal. Now this is either a question or a statement. What is a proof of this? Or the proof of this is Rabban Shimon Gamliel says it is according to the building of the tabernacle of the temple in Solomon's time. It's not clear, just like it wasn't clear before, whether Rabbi Shmuel was contradicting Rabbi Kiva or not, or adding another voice. Um, and we'll we'll get all, to all that in uh, in the Gemara. Figure that out, and then we'll figure out how to read this last line, because the Gemara is also trying to figure out how to read this last line. Lamale le mitna beit chatanot. We're starting the Gemara. Lamale le mitna beit chatanot livno beit amanot levito. Why does the Mishnah say a house, a wedding house for his son and a widow house for his daughter? Litne beit chatanot livno ulevito. Beit amanot livno ulevito. He should. So the Mishnah should have said a wedding house for his son or his daughter or and his daughter, and a uh, house of. Uh, widowhood for his son or daughter. Milta algab or chakamashma. So the Mishnah teaches us something by the way, and this is an often used, an oft used stamaitic uh, move. Milta algab or chakamashma, that the Mishnah is teaching us one thing but implying another thing while teaching us that. The first, in the first sugi in Brachot, the Marad uses says, Milta algab or chakamashma, and talking about then when the Kohanim are allowed to come in to eat. In addition to when Kriyat Shema is, 
and lying on the saying of the Shemites. So here, the Miltaga the the by the way statement is It's not the way of a groom to live with his father-in-law. Kidichtiv, as it says, Besefer ben Sira, Hakol shakalti bekaf moznayim v'lo matzati kalmisubin. I weighed everything on the scales and I found nothing lighter than bran. V'kalmisubin chatan hadar bebeit chamiv. And but lighter than bran was a groom who lived in his father-in-law's house. V'kalmechatan oreach machnis oreach. And even lighter than that, and when he's by lighter, he means worse, bad, right? Because subin is the worst type of grain. Apparently, so worse than that is worse than a a a, a groom who lives with his father-in-law. Oreach machnis oreach is a guest who brings another guest in after him. And worse than a guest who brings another guest is someone who answers before hearing the question. We all know that guy, right? And that's in from Ben Sira eleven thirteen. And that's uh, quoting Proverbs eighteen thirteen. One who replies prior to hearing, it is terrible and an embarrassment. Okay, so it's just an interesting aside here. Now, what is this Ben series quoting the book of Ben Sira? Book of Ben Sira is not a canonical book. But uh, it was a book that was around, and Jenny LeBenz in the book of Ben Sir Rabbinic Literature, an article from 2006, writes the following, The early Palestinian rabbis were apparently open to studying Ben Sir, and they cite him numerous times. Furthermore, based on a comparison to extant versions of Ben Sir, they cite him accurately. The one problem they faced was the need to distinguish themselves from Christians around them, who read Ben Sir alongside other biblical texts and afforded it a canonical status that the rabbis opposed. The rabbis accomplished this by treating Ben Sir as a quasi-rabbinical work rather than a quasi-biblical work, an attitude that is reflected in the citation formula they use, as I will explain later, that there is no hint of discomfort with Ben Sir or discontinuity in its availability for study. The book of Ben Sir does not appear to have arrived in Babylonia until the early 4th century. Babylonian rabbis of the time had to decide what sort of reception it should have within the rabbinic community, with no history or tradition on which to rely. They knew that it was a Jewish book, but the propriety of its place in rabbinic learning was questionable because, among other concerns, their Christian neighbors in Mesopotamia used it in a Christian context. One 4th century rabbi, Rabbi Yosef, approved the work for Jewish use, albeit with some hesitation. After Yosef's time, Ben Sira is cited numerous times in the Babylonian Talmud. However, it is not cited as accurately as in the Palestinian citations for a number of reasons that she will explain explains later on in, in the article. But she does go on to say, in every case in which the Babylonian Talmud cites Ben Sira, one could remove the citation and be left with no dissonance or lacuna in that section of the Talmud. And that's the situation here. Right, so we had the the little the little discussion here about why does it say Beit Chatanot for a son and not Beit Chatanot for a son and a daughter? Then it tells us it's because they want to tell us something. By the way, and then it has the Ben Sira quote, which could have been taken out, and we wouldn't have had a problem, even if we would have left in the Proverbs quote, saying the fact that it ends Shenemar, and it as it says in Proverbs proves once once again. Uh, Lebenz's contention that it's cited as some sort of rabbinic statement. Now, the other thing is, this line, these lines in Ben Sira, are not actually found in Ben Sira. And Lebenz says that they might have been found 
and they, 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 they're similar to lines that are, that are in another book from late antiquity called Achikar. The last line, Kal me'orach me'oreach me'shivdavar b'terem yishma, or me'shivdavar b'terem yishma, which is the same line as in parables, one, one who replies before hearing is bad. That does actually appear in Ben Sira. Interestingly enough, and unclear to me why, in the Hebrew Ben Sira that we have, it does have this, all these lines are in the Hebrew Ben Sira, and it could have been that the Hebrew Ben Sira uses the citations from the Talmud to reconstruct Ben Sira rather than um, just translating it from the Greek. We have two-thirds of Ben Sira in Hebrew, all of Ben Sira in Greek. All right, so that's about Ben Sira and what Ben Sira is doing here. And that the fact that this is in a Stamaitic little discussion with no named Amoraim also supports Lebenz's claim that these citations of Ben Sira are in the Babylonian Talmud are late. Moving on. Rabbi Shmolomer Refet Bakar Hizo. So about the next line in the Mishnah says that Rabbi Shmuel says that this is a stall for animals. And now the question is, Refet Bakarman Katanile. So the Sam says, who's talking about a stall for animals? We were just talking about a widow's house or a, 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 a bridal house, a wedding house. Ikadamri Rabbi Shmuel Katanile. So perhaps, actually, Rabbi Shmuel is one who said it. Ikadamri Rabbi Akiva Katanile. And there are those who say that Rabbi Akiva said it. Igadami Rabbi Akiva Katanilei So those who say that Rabbi Akiva actually was the one who said, mentioned first a stall for animals. And this is what he said. Even though, so changing the gears of the mission, even though, and then Rabbi Akiva says, even though this is like a stall for animals, sometimes a person makes their house, their dwelling, like a stall for animals. So it's in the same measurement as a stall for animals, not that everybody's house is like a pigsty. That's just what your mother said to you. And there are those who say that actually, Rabbi, no, Rabbi Shmuel is the one who introduced the notion of a, an animal stall here. And this is what it, this is what the Mishnah should read. One who wants to make an animal stall should make it has to make it a four by six, and that's what and all that's left of that is Rabbi Shmuel Amar Refet Bakariza. Rabbi Shmuel says that this is an animal stall, but it means either if one wants to make an animal stall, this is what it looks like, or sometimes one makes a house in the dimensions of an animal stall, and that first would be. Rabbi Akiva. The Meiri wants to interject here that the minimum space of a building is four by four amot, and our mission is not disputing that, but rather teaching that if a property was sold with the intention of building this or that specific type of building, a wedding house or a bigger small house or whatever, then it is the size mentioned in the Mishnah. Moreover, if one sells another a property to build a house on, or if one accepts a contract to build a house, then the dimensions are not the minimum possible dimensions, which is four by four, but rather those in our Mishnah. There are those, such as the Ravad of Posquerus, who hold that when one buys property for a house or contracts for a house to be built, then the property or the house is of the minimal dimensions. Our mission is only referring to case when those non-minimum specifics are mentioned. So the Meiri says, the assumption is that if somebody just says then they're going to use these 
dimensions of the Mishnah, and the Rabbah says, no, it's the other way around. You have to specifically cite these dimensions, otherwise it's the minimal dimensions. Okay, Traklin Yud Al Yud. Moving on to the next line in the Mishnah. A Traklin in, in entryway. My Traklin, so the Gemara asks, what is, it, what is a Traklin? Kubta Bevardi. So actually here, a Traklin refers to a house of roses. A, a, and uh, apparently it's a place where there were windows so that you could see roses, and they were very nice. So that had to be 10 by 10. Tani v'kantir shtemesrei al shtemesrei. And then the Gemara says, and we are taught also that a kantir, which we're going to explain in a minute, is 12 by 12, and that we have that in the Tosefta in Babacha 6.24. Kantir animo cherlecha harei zemamidlo shtemesrei al shtemesrei. If one says, I am selling you a kantinar, is what's in the Tosefta, he has to give him something that is 12 by 12. My kantir, what is what is this kantir? The Stam asks, Tarbats Afdani. So he says, it is a place of many courtyards. So it is larger than the other ones. It is a place of many courtyards. Okay, so now we're moving on to the uh, next part of the Mishnah with the Rayala Davar that is not clear what it means and where it comes from. And uh, it's also, the, the text itself is problematic. We're going to actually as opposed to our normal custom, we're going to move with, we're going to stay with the text of the printed editions, not because it is probably original, who knows, not because it's a better text. It doesn't seem that it is a better text, but it is the text as it is explained in the Rishonah. So, and that's probably how it ended up like this. Some comments were added in order to make it more self-explanatory, but there's a lot of stuff, and all the manuscripts have different things. This text is, is a text found in the Munich 95 manuscript, which is not considered one of the better manuscripts, and oftentimes the Munich 95 is what ends up in the printed editions, in the edition printed by the Widow and Brothers Rome. Okay. Rumo kechatsi arko kechatsi rochbo. Its height has to be as half of the length and half of the width. Ra'ayala davar, A proof to this, Rabbi says, is like the building of the, 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 the building that is the temple. Ra'ayala davar man katanile. Who was the one who says ra'ayala davar? Right, so the short this short sugi that follows about Rayala Davar is about understanding whether Rayala Davar this this phrase Rayala Davar is a statement that is made by Rishon Gamliel to support the first opinion in the Mishnah, which then means that the whole Mishnah is in accord with the building of the temple that is the forty by twenty in front of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's Temple, which then means that twenty by ten twenty plus ten equals thirty for the height, right? So 40 plus 20, 40, half of 40 is 20, is 20, half of 20 is 10. Add those together, 30 is the height, according to, to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6. Or, whether Rabbi Shemekin Lili is arguing with Tanakhama and challenging, are we going to demand that every building be built like the temple? Um, and then it would be Kibinyan HaYechal with an interrobank. Kibinyan HaYechal? Okay, so the Gemara goes through this. Rayal Devar Man Katanile. Who said Rayal Devar? One can say there are those who say that Rabbi Shimon Gamliel 
said that statement. And this is what he said. What is the proof of this? Everything is like the building of the temple. And there are those who say that the first opinion in the Mishnah, the earlier opinion, the anonymous opinion, the anonymous voice of the Mishnah said this, taught this. Was challenging this. It's Mu'ikot Matma. He was arguing with this. Right? There is actually the Munich manuscript has Miflig Polik. He argued upon this. This is what Rabbi Shimon Gamliel said to the earlier opinion. What is the proof? Is it from the building of the temple? Are we going to say that everything that is ever built has to be built like the temple? Okay. So that's what that, that's how, to, that's the problematic question of who said Rayal Adabar, who said this is a proof. Is it the earlier opinion and Rabbi Gamliel argues, or is it Rabbi Gamliel who then supplies a reason for the Tanakama for the earlier opinion? So just one thing here, the math here is a bit funky, right? Since the verse in 1 Kings 6.2 says the house which King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high— According to JPS translation, the 60 length doesn't fit the paradigm, right? Because you need 40 and 20 and then 30 in order to get the, the half and ha- half and half equals the height. For this, we need verses 16 and 17. 20 cubits from the rear of the house, he built a partition of cedar planks from the floor to the walls. He furnished its interior to serve as a shrine as the Holy of Holies. The front part of the house, that is the Great Hall, measured 40 cubits. So there's where you get your 40. After deducting the 20 cubits for the Dvir or the Holy of Holies, we are left with 40 cubits length, which then fits well with the dimension of the height, 30, being half the length plus the width, 60. So that's how they get to the height being half the length and the width, by just counting the part that's in front of the sanctuary, the front of the, the Holy of Holies, in Solomon's temple, not the temple that's in Midot, interesting enough, which is the Mishnah that has a whole blueprint of the temple, and not the tabernacle, which is spelled out in, in Torah, uh, but rather Solomon's temple. Okay, we're moving on. Tanya, Acherim Amrim, Rumo, Kikorotav. In the Brita, we were taught that others say that its height is like the height of its beams. Bulema, Rumo, Kirochbo. Let's, why don't we say that its height is like its width? Ibaitema, Beta, Me'ilai, Ravach. Because you can say that a house is wider on top. Ibaitema, Mishum, De'ika, Be'kave. And there are those who say it's because there were windows to put the beams into. So, that the meilai rabach, meaning that the house was built in such a way so that it is more stable by having the higher, the, the, the one end of the beams wider than the other end of the beams. And then the Gemara continues. Rabbi Hanina nafak lekiryata. So Rabbi Hanina came to a town. Ramu cry adadi. And the first thing they did, of course, when he comes to town, is they're going to challenge him on Torah. So they showed him two contradictory verses. Ktiv, it says in one place, um, that from 1 King 6, we just read, the house that King Solomon built to God 60 amot in length and 20 amot in width and 30 amot high. Uktiv, but there's another verse that says, And there's another verse that says that before in front of the dvir, the Holy of Holies, 20 amot wide, 20 amot long, 
um, 20 amot wide and 20 amot high. So that doesn't fit with the other one that said 30 amot high. Amar Laho, so he said back to the answer that actually, Amar Bechanina, not found wanting, said, Ki kachashev misfat kruvim lamala. said, what you're talking about, they measured only from the top of the cherubs and up to the top of the building. My So what does this teach us? How kamashmalan? This is what it teaches us. Lamata kilamala. The up is like the lower. Malamala ain mishamesh klum. Just as above the cherubs, there's nothing. It's just empty space. Aflamata ain mishamesh klum. So too below the cherubs, there is empty space, which is wild because actually the ark is there. So we're going to go on, continue in this sugya next week to learn that there was a magical floating about in the Holy of Holies, uh, that the Ark didn't actually stand on the ground. And we'll see how that works out next week. Magical, mystical Ark and Cherubs. And we're going to stop here. Thank you so much for joining us in this Baby Midrash in the Closet. As always, my deepest appreciation to my producer, Ellie Unger-Sargon. Check out his podcast, Four Cubits, with Jeff Helmreich. They have a new episode up about Judeophobia, anti-Semitism. Very topical, very current. Thanks, as always, to my Charuta, Charlotte van Robert, and to the communications department here at Daf Shrui, Shachar Cohen Hodos. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. And you can always contact me, and every email will be personally answered at thewidowandbrothers at gmail.com. Take care. Happy New Year. Be healthy. See you next time.